Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome life. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Matt Frad, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Terrific, Bill. Good to be with you. Good, good. Glad to have you on. Let me give my listeners a little bit of background of how uh, we've gotten to a point here where you and I are having a conversation on this podcast episode. I have for a long time wanted to have some apologists on from outside the LDS faith. I have reached out in several different forums. I've reached out in emails to multiple apologists uh, who were non-Mormon. And uh, Matt, you're the only one who responded positively who who wanted to do this. So first off, I just want to say thank you for that. I appreciate the invite. I wonder if you might start us off just sharing just a brief little bio about who you are so that my listeners can get a feel for um, who it is that I'm having on the podcast today. Absolutely. I grew up in Australia. Um, I grew up in a, you might say, semi-Catholic home in that my mother was Catholic, my father wasn't. They took us to Mass every week. Um, but as I grew older, I began asking what I like to call the big questions in life. Uh, does God exist? Why do bad things happen to good people, uh, etc.? Uh, and to these, I think, deep, honest, sincere questions I had, I was used and usually given the response, Matt, it's a, it's a mystery. Uh, and right. you know, granted, if God exists, he's going to be mysterious. But I felt like uh, people weren't taking my questions seriously. Um, that may have been the case. Maybe that's just how I interpreted it. As I grew older, though, I, I came to the conclusion that God probably didn't exist, right? That God was sort of like a story uh, invented by parents to make children behave, like a, a metaphysical <laughs> Santa Claus who's going to find out who's been naughty or nice. And... Um, but, so my life started to kind of go downhill in, in many regards, um, you know, with the partying and the drinking and the just looking for joy and not being able to find it, but instead finding boredom. Uh, and it wasn't until I was 17, 
my mum came home from church and told me about an event in Italy, which was called World Youth Day, where 2.5 million young Catholics come from all over the world to celebrate the, the Christian faith with the Holy Father. Uh, and while I wasn't interested in the Holy Father, I was interested in that many ladies, uh, if I can be frank. Uh, and so, <laughs> so I went. I, I went for, for fun, and, um, and, and I encountered the person of Jesus Christ, and it ruined my life. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, in the sense that it just changed it. It, it, just, it was the most beautiful thing that has ever happened to me. I, I came home like those annoying Christians I had met in my hometown, just annoyingly happy. You know, that, that look, right. I, I came to believe God existed. He loved me. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me, etc., uh, etc. Et and, and that really did change my life. And though I did have many questions, and I do have many questions today, and there are times that I struggle with doubt in some regard, I do find Christianity, in particular Catholicism, to be the most convincing explanation uh, of the way things are. Uh, and I'm very, very happy and very uh, blessed, I think, to, to be a Catholic today. Awesome. I know you live in California, right? But obviously, uh, just to point out, my listeners are obviously picking up on this. It's not a Californian accent. So would you mind telling people where you're from? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I grew up near Adelaide in South Australia. Awesome. Every time I talk to my mother, she yells at me. She says, Matthew, you sound like an American now. Come on, get it together. <laughs> Isn't that funny how people in your, your previous area you lived can pick up that things have changed, but those that are around you still notice the deep Australian accent? Yes, it is. Um, at what age did you move away from Australia? When I was about 19, I believe, 20, I moved to Canada to do full-time missionary work. I traveled the country with other missionaries, going into Catholic schools, talking about the Catholic faith. Uh, then I went to Ireland, did the same thing, met my wife, who was from Texas. Uh, long story short, I moved to Texas in 2005. Uh, we got married in 2006 and have been, uh, you know, bandying about back and forth between lots of different cities and countries. But uh, currently we're in San Diego. Gotcha. Excellent. What, uh, what got you involved in apologetics? Uh, I think I'm just very interested uh, in wanting to know what, if things are true and if they are, how to explain them. I don't know what it's like in the LDS Church, um, Bill, but in the Catholic Church, in, in many areas, in the United States Church, I should say here, uh, it seems like we cart off young people to big, emotionally charged events, right, uh, where they encounter, perhaps, the person of Christ, and many times I, I believe they do. Um, but it's very emotionally driven. And what happens is, it seems to me, when they come back, someone will pose them a question. You know, they'll say, well, I mean, eh, who created God? And something as stupid as that uh, will uh, will throw them out of the faith because there was never any intellectual bedrock. And so I'm of the opinion that once we've, if we can give these intellectual reasons, you know, show them that Christianity is an intellectually viable option uh, and just be able to explain it logically, then that can kind of complement the emotions, whether they come or not. But uh, that emotions shouldn't be the bedrock upon which we build our faith because they fluctuate so much. So uh, I'm very passionate about it in that regard. In, in terms of, you know, being a Catholic apologist, I mean, what all does that entail? I mean, what, what's a, a normal week like for, for you interacting within that uh, that realm? Well, I, I do, you know, radio interviews with Mormons. <laughs> sure. No, no, I'm um, well, I, I write on my website, mattfrad.com. Um, when I was working for Catholic Answers, I would be on the radio, uh, maybe similar to what you're doing now. Uh, I would uh, answer people's questions that, that write in and then just do a lot of study in different areas of Catholic apologetics. I like to break apologetics into three compartments, and they would be, at least from a Catholic's perspective, and that would be theistic apologetics, which would be concerned with arguing for the existence of God based upon nature, reality. 
The second compartment would be Christian apologetics, right? Uh, was Christ who he claimed to be? Uh, and is he who he claimed to be? Why is Christianity true and Islam not true, etc.? And then the third compartment would be Catholic apologetics, uh, which would deal with Catholic distinctives, you know, like why pray to Mary <laughs> or uh, what's the deal with the Pope, those sorts of things. Um, and so I try and keep study these different areas as much as I'm able. Awesome. I want to ask you a question. Most of my listenership is made up of Latter-day Saints who are aware of of difficult issues within the faith. Uh, some of them may have questions or doubts. Some of them may be wondering how to put things back together. Some of them are apologists who listen simply for the information that's shared on the podcast. But most of them are aware kind of of, of those types of things. And and again, recognizing that, uh, that most of them um, are either helping people who struggle with those kinds of questions or have them themselves. I want to start off by asking you, did you ever have a faith crisis yourself? It sounds a little bit when you introduced yourself that you had a little bit of a one kind of before even coming into a full belief. But have you? But maybe if you want to talk about that one, or if you've had others since then. Well, sure. I think since my conversion in the year 2000, since it was so dramatic. Uh, I mean, I went from someone who dressed entirely in black, wrote suicide poems, put them up on my wall, you know, <laughs> was getting drunk and doing stupid stuff, to someone who uh, would then go to those same parties with my Bible and not drink. It was just a dramatic change. Um, not not in virtue necessarily. I mean, I, I I'm not saying I became a saint overnight or that I am one now, certainly not, but the, uh, the change was pretty radical. And because of that, a couple of years later, when I didn't really feel any strong emotion, I didn't really feel uh, God's presence in a, in a tangible way, I, I, I got frustrated. I thought I want it to be like the way it was back then. And so that posed a faith crisis for me of sorts. Uh, but what I realized through that was that, um, again, like I said before, faith <clears throat> shouldn't be dependent upon how we feel in the same way that marriage shouldn't be dependent upon the way we feel. When I first met my wife, Cameron, I felt all sorts of emotion, right? <laughs> I was, you know, I couldn't sleep because I couldn't stop thinking about her, you know. Uh, I would sure. wake up at three in the morning, you know, when I was in Australia to call her in Texas. However, you know, when you get married and daily life happens, those feelings fluctuate. Sometimes they're there, but many times they're not there. And if you were to base, you know, the strength of your marriage upon how much emotion you're feeling, then that's just silly. You'd get divorced a number of times or something. You'd leave them or something. However, rather than basing on emotion, I base it on my decision to love her. I said to her at our wedding day, I will love you in good times and bad and sickness and health. So theoretically, one day, perhaps I might stop feeling all emotions. Well, if that happens, I can just go ahead and get over it uh, because I promised to love her. And so I will love her independent of the feelings. And in a similar way, I have accepted the truth about Christianity Sometimes the emotions are there, sometimes they're not. But regardless, I know it's true. And those lack of emotions do not have to challenge my faith commitment. Sure. And, you know, you and I talked a lot, and I think we're both kind of on a, on a equal par on this part, that we want to have some, some dialogue about differences in our faiths without obviously being any kind of combative conversation. But as you're sharing some of those thoughts about emotion being a lack, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to debate this with you. I just want to simply state, obviously, to the listeners that the LDS perspective is certainly a little different than that. Uh, we look at, um, scriptures and, and I'm not, you know, want to go back and forth, but one of the scriptures we, we talk a lot about is in Galatians where we talk about the fruits of the spirit and there are these, these emotional feelings or emotional traits. 
um, love, for instance, being one of them. Um, and so Latter-day Saints will certainly put more emphasis on spiritual feelings. But at the same time, kind of to what you're speaking of, I would certainly agree that those feelings are not there all the time and that we've got to have other ways to trust things. And one of the things you spoke of in your marriage to your wife essentially is this covenant or this promise. And so within LDS uh, practice, we also have covenants that we're making, whether they're early ones that we're making within baptism or confirmation or those made within the, the sacred walls of the temple. We certainly see those promises as an extra strength to us at those times, as you point out, when emotion is not around. There are times where things happen in life where we're just not feeling it. And to be able to rely back on those promises uh, that we've made, uh, I think, as you point out, can be an extra strength to us. Sure. I uh, I wanted to ask you, too, what kind of common challenges do you find as you deal with uh, with Catholic apologetics, the type of things that, that Catholics run into that they're coming to you to ask you, uh, just maybe in general, just the, the bigger questions that they're coming to you with? You know, I think maybe 20 years ago, uh, the majority of questions Catholics were asking had to do with uh, their interactions with Protestant Christians. So they would want to know, well, how do I explain purgatory from the Bible? We explain what that is to your LDS listeners, if you like. Um, but or how, how do how do I explain this or that from the Bible? Uh, and we still do get those questions, and we do need to give a good defense of them. However, it seems to me that today most people in the world, if you will are not asking, where is that in the Bible? Instead, they're asking, why think the Bible is reliable at all? Or why think God exists? And so I think many of the questions that get raised today have to do with that first compartment of apologetics that I mentioned earlier, that is theistic apologetics. Uh, because we do live in an increasingly secular society where more and more people are not associating themselves as believers in God, uh, or certainly not as, as, as Christians. And so I find that those are the questions uh, people are asking today, Catholic. Yeah, it feels like it feels like with the internet, with all of the information that surrounds us. I mean, people carry essentially a computer in their hand as they're making phone calls and texting, and in between going to Google and looking something up. That essentially we've made everybody, at least in their mind, think that they're capable of being a scholar on almost anything. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And so I wondered, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because this is what we run into in the LDS faith, and I could see a very easy similarity within the Catholic faith. Um, a lot of Latter-day Saints, what their struggles tend to be over is that as, the, as they get this very simplified, uh, I want to say naive explanation of how the church is begun, how it started, how it's restored. And then over the years, as they begin looking things up on the Internet, they'll find a, a little piece of information here, a little piece of information there that they were never told anywhere along the way. Not that it was hidden. There were there were magazine articles that talked about it within the church. It might be within a lesson manual here or there. But in general, it's not part of the Sunday conversation. And so members of the church will struggle over that. And as I look at Catholicism, and, I, and in my workplace, I'm the only Mormon, um, and I work with seven or eight people, and almost all of them are Catholics, and we we, not, we have really good discussions going back and forth and talking about these things. But there, one of the things I notice, too, is that similar to our faith, the Catholic Church has a, a history that if one wants to pick out problems, one could do that. And I wonder how much you get of Catholics coming to you and saying, you know, I was reading on the Internet and I read about this Inquisition or I read about this historical event. And how could we do that? Do you encounter much of that? Oh, certainly. No, you raise a good point. Um, And this is why I find many of the objections against Mormonism based on, say, bad behavior of Mormons simply uncompelling. I mean, all that proves is that Mormons and Catholics aren't living consistently with what their religion teaches. If you know 
a uh, Catholic uh, who is narrow-minded and arrogant and spiteful? Well, the question you should ask is, does their church teach that they ought to be these things? Uh, And as it turns out, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that. If she did, then you might have good reason for rejecting the Catholic Church on on those grounds. And in a similar way, I've heard people say things like this. You know, I know Mormons who, when they left the Mormon Church, their whole family shunned them. Well, okay, does the Mormon Church teach that they should do that? Well, as it turns out, no. The Mormon Church teaches that you ought to love everybody, whether they're Mormon or have left the church or or what? Uh, And so I just find these arguments unconvincing. What we really need to be looking at is the substance of what we believe and whether these things uh, can be justified on the basis of reason and uh, revelation. Right. We we have a general conference once every six months where uh, the man we believe to be a prophet and those that we believe to be uh, Christ's apostles stand before us and and share talks and thoughts and sermons and things like that. And in our most recent conference, one of the members of... uh, the first presidency, which is the prophet has two counselors that assist him. One of them, and I don't know how familiar you are with church leadership within the LDS church, but one of them is named uh, Elder uh, Dieter F. Uchtdorf. And he gave a talk where he encouraged those who have struggled to come back. And, and the quote that he gives, I thought was applicable to what you just said. He, he makes this comment. He says, and to be perfectly frank, there are times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There have been times where things have been said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, and doctrine. And I think you hit on it, which is to not brush off anybody simply because somebody within their faith made a mistake or did something that was not consistent with what Christ would ask of us. If you think about it in the Old Testament, if you had have used that as the litmus test to discover the true religion, the litmus test being, you know, uh, impeccable, (laughs) then you would have missed the true religion, which was at the time, of course, Judaism, right? Because they screwed up a lot. Uh, And so, yeah, so I think it's important that when Mormons and Catholics dialogue about our differences, we talk about what matters, uh, that is the substance of those beliefs, and as I said, whether they can be justified, because I think these other things uh, can be red herring, um, as as you point out. Yeah, and another thing you just touched on, using the Old Testament or New Testament as an example, I find it ironic that most people who come to me, and I assume the same may hold true for you, come to you with these historical questions of contradictions with someone who's done something in a modern time or recently, that it almost never strikes them to look to history and to see those similar examples. King David, uh, Moses the murderer, right? Rahab the prostitute. Right, right. Noah's Noah's drinking and, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, just, there's lots of things that go on in the scriptures that just... If we want to look for people who are called of God who are making mistakes, uh, we certainly can then reflect back and not use that as a litmus test for whether it be a president of our church, the prophet, or whether it be uh, the pope of the Catholic church, that those those are not um, biblical grounds for excluding their claims. That's right. Now, one of the reasons you could reject the Catholic church would be, uh, see, many people mistake papal infallibility with papal impeccability. What is papal infallibility? Well, it means that God guards his church and that whenever the pope speaks, ex cathedra is the big fancy word we use that is from the chair, whenever the pope speaks uh, authoritatively on faith and morals that he cannot err, right? That, that he cannot teach error. Um, so if you could point to a papal infallible statement that is in error, 
then that would show that papal infallibility is false and the Catholic Church uh, is not the true church. And I imagine, Bill, you may agree with me that if, and maybe you don't, you could clarify this for me, if, that if one could point to a prophet who said he uh, was inspired by God and told by God to teach a certain thing, if that thing happened to be false, uh, or and maybe is where we differ, where he would contradict a subsequent prophet, um, w- would you see that as evidence that the, uh, the Mormon church might be, might be false? And, and I'm not setting you up here. I don't have an example. I'm just... The, the LDS faith takes a different stance. We have a scripture in our in our church that says a prophet is a prophet only when acting as such. And so in the general conversation that these uh, these men have as they're teaching, as they're talking, as they're... Uh, some of them have written books. Some of them have obviously given long sermons within general conference, the, the meeting I just spoke about. The leaders of our church as they're, as they're speaking, there's a responsibility on the members of the church to be in tune with the Holy Spirit to know whether these men are speaking uh, the messages that God has instructed them to, or at times these men are just sharing thoughts and opinions. And so if there was a a contradiction, and and we have them, we have um, a prophet early on sharing an opinion on a subject, and then the brethren coming out later on unitedly and saying, you know, that thought was an opinion, it is not doctrine of the church, and and so no one is bound to to hold that uh, as the doctrine of the church. And so I think there's room within LDS theology for leaders to be sharing thoughts all the time, and then certain times to specify that they are speaking on behalf of the Lord, and in other times for the responsibility beyond the members to know if what they're teaching is is congruent with the Holy Ghost. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, so, and I see what you're saying. It's a good distinction that needs to be made in Catholic theology too. But I suppose we should point out the difference, a big difference here between papal infallibility and your understanding of the prophet. Of course, is that Catholics do not believe that we receive ongoing revelation. That public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. So when the, right. when the Pope teaches something infallibly, he's not he's not uh, adding something to the deposit of faith. Whereas in Mormonism, you believe in ongoing revelation. So, so that's that's the difference. Uh, sure. But I had a question. Uh, are you say so? For example, we always make this joke. You know, if the Pope says, you know, that this team are going to win the championship this year, doesn't mean you should believe him. You know, he, he's only infallible when speaking on faith and morals authoritatively. Now. But we would say that the Pope is aware when he's making a statement. Now, uh, from what I just heard you say, it sounded like a prophet can be saying something which he believes to be from God, but it later turns out he wasn't. Is that right or no? No, I, I guess I better be more clear. When for, for something to be constituted as doctrine or coming out of the mouth of a, a leader as as the mind and will of the Lord, generally a president of the church will say something to the extent of thus saith the Lord. Or the, the 15 brethren unitedly will, will throughout our church history teach those principles commonly. So in other words, it's a safe assumption if all 15 are teaching that faith is one of the principles of the gospel, that that's a doctrine. And, and then also there are times where the president of the church will make a statement. It will be brought before the entire church for all of the church members to raise their hand in a sustaining vote of that. So for instance, in 1978, when priesthood was given to all worthy males within the church, which which did away with a long policy, which uh, which uh, you know did not allow uh, certain races to have priesthood within our faith. When that change happened in 1978, it was brought before uh, all the members of the church for a sustaining vote. And when all the members raised their hand, essentially that gets put into LDS canon uh, as revelation. Are you saying then that God? Uh, and we don't have to drill into this, but I, that's okay. Are you saying that God uh, changed His mind at that point, or are you saying that the subsequent teaching on blacks not being allowed to hold the priesthood was? I'm saying that up until the revelation in 1978, 
leaders of the church did the best they could with the information they had. And unfortunately, we did have a time in our country where where some amounts of uh, racism or negative attitudes towards those who are different than us uh, prevailed. And so I think it would be normal to kind of see that in in various people, even members of various churches. So for instance, for a Catholic to be racist in the 1920s, while certainly unacceptable by our present standards, um, they would have been seen as the norm in their group. Now, now that's true. However, if the Pope at one point taught that blacks were inferior to whites, or if he taught that blacks could not in, uh, be, be priests, I would say that would be a good reason to abandon the church because it would show that the church wasn't infallible because it's very different for the Pope to teach something infallibly and a regular Catholic to hold a certain opinion. So which one of those two things would you say? Was Mormon prophets prior to 1978 wrong in thinking God didn't want blacks into the priesthood or... or not? Well, you're, you're, sure, you're delving into personal opinion now because the church has never made a statement. In fact, right, yep. Early on, Joseph Smith gave priesthood to black members. Uh, sometime in the mid to late 1800s, a policy was begun where that was no longer allowed. Different leaders within the church tried to give context or a framework to that policy. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves, you know, 70 to 80 years fast forward. And all of a sudden leaders were looking at that and saying, you know, and see if there's a different policy that should be in place. So essentially we would say that not until 1978, we did not get an official stance from Heavenly Father through the prophet. Does that make sense? And I want to add something to it. I was just looking up the, uh, there's a quote here from Elder Holland, who's one of the uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so he was asked by PBS, he did, there was an interview done. And the question that PBS asked was this. They said, um, we've talked to many blacks and whites as well about the lingering folklore, why blacks couldn't have the priesthood. There are faithful Mormons who are delighted about this revelation and yet who feel something more should be said about the folklore, even possibly about the mysterious reasons for the ban itself, which was not a revelation, it was a practice. So if you could, briefly address the concerns Mormons have about this folklore and what should be done. Elder Holland said this, he said, One clear-cut position is that the folklore must never be perpetuated. I have to concede to my earlier colleagues, they, I'm sure, in their own way, were doing the best they knew to give shape to the policy, to give context to it, to even give history to it. All I can say is, however well-intended the explanations were, I think almost all of them were inadequate and or wrong. It probably would have been advantageous to say nothing, to say we just don't know, and as with many religious matters, whatever was being done was done on the basis of faith at that time. But some explanations were given and had been given for a lot of years. At the very least, there should be no effort to perpetuate those efforts or to explain why the doctrine existed. I think to the extent that I know anything about it, as one of the newer and younger ones to come along, we simply do not know why that practice, that policy, or that doctrine was in place. And so you can see there's a hesitancy there to even try to guess what the earlier leaders were thinking, but rather to acknowledge that we didn't have God's will until the 1978 revelation. I, I appreciate that distinction. You're saying this was a practice. This wasn't something revealed by a Heavenly Father. And, and within the LDS faith, there is no no infallibility clause with any part of it. And in, in the sense that we recognize that leaders are are fallible, that they, they do make mistakes, and that even when teaching, with the exception of when they are declaring that they've got a revelation from God and that that revelation is binding on the church, outside of those, which are rare, 
Um, we allow for a leader to, to share his opinion on something and from time to time for that to be, uh, in conflict with, with truth. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the Catholic, uh, beliefs and maybe some things going on within your church. I want to start off with Pope Francis and, and I have to preface this with a lot of times if a Catholic apologist got into a conversation with a Mormon or any other faith, you might expect some negative comment, but I, I want to share with you that from the moment Pope Francis, uh, took lead in the Catholic Church, I have been extremely impressed with him as a human being and am in awe over some of the the wonderful things that he has said and done. And, and so maybe first, before getting into some questions, just um, just to let you know my admiration uh, early on uh, or for this man who I see as a man of God. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you. And now a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion Podcast. He has written the book, 77 Days in September. It tells of a story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating at four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. What are your reactions to some of the things that he's been speaking about and talking about? I know when it comes to cultural issues, I'll use an example of um, same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage, for instance. Uh, Pope Francis has taken the stand that, you know, church is a hospital. Let's not concern ourselves with these these deep issues. Let's worry about getting them back into church. Let's worry about changing their hearts, and we'll let the other things, you know, worry about themselves later on. What are your thoughts about his approach to, to issues that has certainly been different than than past popes in the, in the Catholic Church? Thanks, Bill. Yeah, well, I think I'd dispute that last point you made, that his approach is in any way different. I'd say his style might be different, but it's always been the understanding of the church that uh, that homosexual acts are intrinsically evil however same-sex attraction is not uh that you know so long as it's not uh, fostered or uh, or what whatever but uh, so i would say that that what he has said regarding uh, homosexuality is right in keeping with what the church has always taught however one thing he seems to be saying and i'm glad he is saying it uh is that as catholics there's more to our faith than talking about homosexuality or homosexual marriage contraception and abortion right uh not that these three things aren't very important topics, but I have to be honest, there's some Catholics I have run circles with in the past who, if you're not talking about homosexual marriage, contraception, or abortion, you wouldn't have anything else to talk about. That's all they wanted to talk about. And I think what our Holy Father is doing is saying, certainly these need to be addressed, but let's remember that the good news is comes prior to that, and is, uh, you know, God exists. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you, uh, to redeem you of your sins, right? Like, this is the message the church is to preach. And, of of course, a part of that message is since human beings have intrinsic worth, you don't kill them in the womb, right? And since sex has an end to it, you don't contracept it. And the same thing with homosexual marriage being impossible. Those things are important. But we can't lose sight of the fact that uh, our primary calling is to, to, to announce the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, uh, and not to become a, a, a community that is obsessed with certain things to the negation of, of other 
truth. Does that make sense? It does. And I didn't want you to think that I was, I'm trying to point out contradictions in the beliefs of your current Pope versus past ones, but rather it seems like Pope Francis is making a very conscious effort in his, in his outward behavior to help teach other Catholics to focus more on the positives of the gospel than to worry about um, bringing, making others aware of their sins or the negative aspects of of um, of negative behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think similar to the way in which you would say, uh, let's say the prophet has has an interview that he does on an airplane, you know, and and they ask him some questions. Well, you, Bill, could read the interview and disagree with your prophet, right, and still be a good Mormon. You know, you would have deference to him, you would have respect of, of for him, but you could read his, read what he says and think, yeah, I don't think he said that. As well as he could have, or I wish he understood how the media was going to interpret that. And I think those are some reasonable feelings that some or many Catholics may have when they read Pope Francis's words. They might think to themselves, "I wish he could have prefaced that a little better." Um, and so, a Catholics free to do that. Um, sure. But it, ne- it needs to be understood in light of the whole tradition. In the same way, I'm sure you would say that if your prophet was interviewed and maybe said a few things off the cuff, you would say, "Listen, listen, what he's saying has to be understood." in the tradition of the LDS church. You can't just cherry pick that and say this is now, you know, where the LDS church is is moving. Right. And and I'm and it does, and I I guess I don't want to be confused. I'm trying to say the the opposite in the sense that I really am I really think the things that Pope Francis is saying is quite praiseworthy. And uh, and some of the it just seems like his motives are as pure as is is anyone I've seen come along in a long time. And I'll give you an example within our faith. There are there are leaders within our church not that one leader contradicts another, but that their focuses are different and that some tend to focus more on helping people understand where the lines are in the gospel and what things um, are severe uh, sins and things need to be repented of. While other leaders in the church, Elder Uchtdorf, which I mentioned earlier, tends to focus more on the positive and, and being more inclusive and welcoming people in. And, and it's not that one leader is what they're teaching is bad or another one's good, but their approach seems to be different. And I'm just saying that Pope Francis's approach seems to be this very inclusive, very welcoming, very um, humbling, the the greatest is the least, the least is the greatest type of attitude. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, and, I agree with you. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and appreciative of that. And I wondered if if that approach that he has, is that, if we can just simply strike that off as his approach, or is there is there within the Catholic Church maybe a, a slight change to, to adapt to that? And, and maybe I should preface it with this. Within our faith, realizing that in present times that the issues that people deal with are different than what they dealt with a hundred years ago. I see in many ways the LDS church making a conscious effort as a whole, as an institution, to to try and enlarge enlarge the tent, be more welcoming, try to make the church as as empathetic, as welcoming as it possibly can be. And it feels like Pope Francis is taking that same course. Do you feel like the church as a whole is doing that or is this just one man's uh, style? No, I agree with you that, uh, you know, leadership sort of trickles downward. And so with, uh, let's say, John Paul II, right, there was the emphasis due to his own spirituality on Marian devotion. I think that influenced a lot of the church. With Pope Benedict, he had a strong emphasis on the study of sacred scripture and a strong emphasis on liturgy. And so that influenced the church. And now I think with Pope Francis, he has a strong emphasis on loving the poor and welcoming the sinner. And none of these conflict. As you know, uh, right, right. the different emphases and I emphases, and I think that that will uh, influence the church. Yes, gotcha. You mentioned Pope Benedict. What are your uh, What are your thoughts to him having stepped down? In the sense that 
historically that had not happened in a long time. Was was that something that, as a Catholic apologist, that came up at all? Uh, no, it's certainly uh, something he is welcome to do. It's uh, as you as you said, it has precedent, and the Pope's free to do that if he doesn't think he can uh, carry on the duties. And so, no, I, I thought that was a courageous and humble act of his. Yeah, and I and I would agree with that. And I don't I don't see this as in any way problematic, even as a Latter Day Saint who is aware of of Catholicism just simply from conversations with people at work. I didn't see it as problematic either. I just I wondered if because it hadn't happened in so long, if if any Catholics did have concern over that. No, I, I don't think so. Perhaps they did, and I'm sure uh, those who knew better did the best they could to clear up that concern. So I'm reading this article from you where you talk about different faiths outside of Mormonism, referring to Mormons as a cult. And you tackle that idea, and, and in your article, in a sense, help defend the, the the church in at least one way by saying that that's really not a word that would should be used to help uh, in the communication from one faith to another. Would you would you mind maybe elaborating on your thoughts on on the use of the word cult? Sure, I think that the word cult has gathered a lot of negative baggage and does not have uh, any objective agreed upon definition and is therefore unhelpful. Uh, and so I don't think the Mormon church is a cult and I don't think others should use that language for two reasons. One, it's unhelpful. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you'd agree, Bill, but if I said to you, Bill, you're a part of a cult, yeah, I'm sure that wouldn't open you up to what I'm saying. In the same No, way, the interview would probably be a little shorter. Same is true of me. You know, if someone <laughs> said to me, Matt, you're a part of a cult, I, it's just a slur that we throw at each right. other, I think, to dismiss uh, out of hand what they believe. Secondly, what I did in my article is I looked at several definitions of the word cult, boiled them down, and showed that the Mormon church doesn't really fit into any of these, or if they do, so does the Catholic Church from another person's perspective. So I think we ought to drop the word cult, drop the name calling, and just deal with the uh, the substance of each other's beliefs. Yeah, you know, you'll see people try to justify the use of that word by referring back to what the original meaning of the word is, but it almost seems like they're trying to play a game of semantics, where in reality, they're trying to use it as a slur, but then defend their use of it by going to the old dictionary definition. And, and really, the, the slur word of the, of the word cult, it's almost to say, essentially, you know, you're different than me, I disagree with you, and you're not somebody I like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I so, agree with you there. <laughs> do you think the word cult can be applied to any religious group? I mean, is there anybody out there that that word you think is fitting? See here, if you told me of uh, a wide-eyed, charismatic psychopath who uh, convinced a small group of people to sell all they own, give him the money, and then he convinced them that they shall kill themselves, then yeah, okay, maybe maybe cult would be a good, a good word for that. Uh, maybe crazy would. Uh, so... So if we do use the word cult, I think the first thing we have to say is, what do you mean by cult? And I, I would advise your Mormon listeners to do that. If someone tells you you're a part of a cult, instead of getting defensive, you should just say, what do you mean by cult? And, sure, sure. and I imagine once they start, if they even know what they mean, you can help them understand that, well, Mormonism doesn't fit those definitions. Unless by cult you just mean someone I disagree with, in which case, well, okay, I, I guess I'm a cult, a part of a cult. <laughs> you know. Sure. And, and realizing that you personally don't see value in using that word, especially if you want to have a, a, a friendly conversation with somebody and two people really be able to speak and to, to get at the heart of a matter, that that word is going to essentially divide one against another and really not open up that, that path of conversation. So, so again, I recognize that you don't take that point of view. Now, and I'm not picking on the Catholic Church because I think there are people within Catholicism, other Christian faiths, and even Mormonism who would look at other groups and want to use that word. Do you think it would be fair, though, um, 
if Catholics at the time of the Reformation, would they have considered Protestantism uh, a cult, do you think? No, I think they would have said they're heretical, they're heretics. Uh, They are teaching that which has not been passed down uh, by the apostles, or they are rejecting that which has been passed down by the apostles, and so they would be heretics. Excellent. And maybe I'll play on that here in a moment when we get to our conversation as we talk about the definition of the word Christian. Um, The last question I want to talk to you in regards to uh, the word cult and how we use that and, and how faith or people of faith will tend to throw that out against somebody they disagree with. In in your personal effort to remove that word from the dialogue, do you see your faith or other faiths within Christianity at large doing the same thing to improve communication, or do you feel like you're you're blazing a trail that nobody else wants to, to go down? No, I'm sure there's reasonable and intelligent Christians all over the map who, who realize that, that name-calling isn't helpful. Um, so, so no, I, I certainly don't think I'm blazing a trail, but I, I hope it helps people in their dialogue. Um, you know, we, we just have to stop yelling at each other and stop telling each other what each other believes and just listen to each other and, and dialogue. I think that's the only way uh, to, to, to the truth. I don't think you can get there uh, by, by name-calling and labeling. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, especially if the end goal really is to share your faith and to hope that somebody will will see the things that you have faith in in and also change some of the things they're doing to come to that uh, same conclusion that you have kind words and, and understanding is really the only way you're going to be able to do that to build that bridge. The thing I want to kind of start to kind of wrap up on, you would express some interest maybe in having a little discussion on on the definition of the word Christian and, and obviously Latter-day Saints call themselves Christians. There are lots of other faiths outside of Mormonism who will say that Mormons are not Christians. I think sometimes Latter-day Saints get confused over the issue because they'll point out the fact that they worship Jesus Christ, that they see him as the Savior and Redeemer, that they believe in the exact same Christ who who shows up in the New Testament, all of the things that are said of him in the New Testament, Latter-day Saints accept and believe. And then, and then those outside the faith still want to say, well, you know, in spite of all that, you're not a Christian. Would you mind maybe elaborating on, on your view of that, that dialogue? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I was recently listening to a YouTube debate between Richard Dawkins and a Christian. And Dawkins had taken a survey of people who claimed to be Christian. And what he found out was they didn't believe half of the things that Christians believed. You know, some of them rejected uh, his divinity. Some others uh, rejected that he founded a church or so forth. And so Dawkins was saying, look, these people aren't Christians. To which the Christian responded, how dare you tell people how they should call themselves? or what they should call themselves. But in this back and forth, I actually agreed with Richard Richard Dawkins. I I think he was right. I think Christianity means something. Uh, And so because I think that Mormons have a warped understanding of Christ and God, uh, I, I... I wouldn't call I wouldn't call Mormonism a Christian religion. Um, I, I don't think they have a valid baptism, uh, and I don't think that they're. I think their understanding, your understanding of Christ, is so uh, warped from the, the truth of who Christ is that I could call you. Um, well, I, I could say maybe you know maybe an individual Mormon has certainly encountered Christ. I don't reject that, Bill. I, I don't doubt for a moment that you have encountered Christ in His Word, uh, that you maybe experience Him in prayer. I'm not denying that, and so I don't know if I'd go so far as to say uh, an uh, an individual Mormon 
uh, is not a Christian. The only thing I, I want to say with, with what I think I can say certainty is that, that Mormonism is, is not a Christian religion. And, and I know, I know you sure, disagree sure. with that. I, I don't mean to be uh, confrontational, uh, but, but what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, no, I, I appreciate hearing that from you. I, I don't have a problem with talking with those outside my faith and, and discussing disagreements. And I in no way took what you said as being offensive, but I would want to follow it up with what do you, what would you say then is the minimum definition for a faith to be considered a Christian faith? I would say acceptance of the Trinity. I would say that you would have to believe that God, there is one God, which I know Mormonisms do not, Mormons do not believe. Uh, I know you believe you're bound to believe only this one God, but, 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 uh, but you essentially believe in, in an infinite regress of gods, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and that uh, you would need to believe that this God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ is the one true God, that the Holy Spirit is the one true God, that the Father is the one true God. Uh, and because Mormons reject that, uh, I would say they're not a Christian religion. Okay. And, and I'm glad that you use those kind of as the, the litmus test. A couple of thoughts. And again, I, I know you and I get it. I want to keep expressing this because I don't want listeners to feel like you and I are getting ready to have this battle royal over this. I don't want to do that. Um, and I certainly respect where you're coming from. But one of the things that those who defend the LDS faith would come out with and say in this regard, when we talk about the Trinity, for instance, the word Trinity is not mentioned in the scriptures at all. The Even the idea of all, you know, the Godhead being one God, there are also other scriptures that if we wanted to pick and choose, there are other scriptures that would say that they are very different from each other. Um, and so, so for instance, Christ praying to the Father and, and, you know, the Father telling, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there, there's other scriptures that one, if one wants to build a case, that one can do that. And I get that. I think any faith can point to scriptures and say, see, I'm right. And the next guy can go, no, you're wrong because I've got a scripture too. And, this is why you and I would agree that the Protestant understanding of sola scriptura, the belief that the Bible is the final authority for the Christian, uh, is uh, spurious, that it, it, right. it, uh, it's not biblical and it's not workable. So you and I would agree with that, that there needs to be the church which Christ established, uh, which can uh, expound the scriptures to help us make sense of them. So you and I, I think yeah. would be in agreement on that point. Yeah, which leads right to my point, which if we understand that, that scriptures are not perfect that that there there is room there for See, no I, um, I wouldn't agree with you I, I would say that the bible is inerrant so that in that sense it is perfect i guess i'm saying in the sense that we can have different uh for instance i'll give you an example in the resurrection of christ from account to account we have at times the historical events taking place in perhaps a little different era, uh, order who shows up at the tomb first who shows up later but that the doctrine is pure and what I'd say with that, Bill, is these are apparent contradictions. They're not actual contradictions. I think you'd probably agree with that. Um, would you say that the Bible does contradict itself, and so one of those accounts is wrong? I I would say this, and this is the other thing, too. It gets tough when we get into some of these things, hashing them out, because it takes so long to try and explain where one actually stands. But what I would say is this. I don't feel like those who are writing the scriptures uh, have Jesus Christ or Heavenly Father in their ear telling them every single word to write. So they may, they may be taught, they may be um, instructed or inspired to share an idea or a concept or a truth, but then they may also allow their own experience to make its way into some of the things that they share. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So this is where we disagree. We would say that Jesus Christ uh, was 100% God, 100% man. Uh, and we would say of the scripture that 
while it was written down by the pens of men, and I think most Catholic theologians would agree with you that it wasn't as if the Holy Spirit was whispering in their ear. However, it is completely without error and is indeed the word of God. Um, but back back to this business about the Trinity, Bill. Um, do you, do you, maybe I know you disagree with me, do, but do you see my point that someone can't just say, I believe in Jesus, and if by Jesus they mean something other than what's been understood and what's taught by the scriptures, that, that you wouldn't call them a Christian? Like if I said, I believe in Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ, I meant, I don't know, uh, a different... The, the guy down, right, the guy down the street whose name is Jesus Christ, and he's a, he works at the uh, at the train station, right, I get it. Taco Bell, right? Sure. Yeah. You would agree with me that, well, okay, that, that doesn't, that's not really a Christian. And, and I would also say, someone might say, well, I read the Bible, and I find him to be a very uh, good moral teacher, and so I follow his teachings. And you could say, well, I suppose, uh, I see how you say you're a Christian, and that you, you follow his teachings but I don't think that that's enough. Uh, and so in, in the same way, uh, I would say because Mormonism has a wrong understanding of who God and Christ are, that, that that's, that's why we wouldn't, we wouldn't call them Christians. But that isn't to deny that you have experienced Christ uh, or that you don't experience him when you read the scriptures. Sure. The, the point I want to make then is you're kind of sharing that, and I would agree with you 100%. If we are verbally espousing Jesus Christ, but we have something completely different in mind than the Christ of the scripture. Completely different than different enough, you know, so as to make it a a significant difference. Yeah. Yep. And so talking about the Trinity, for instance, we know that the, the effort on behalf of the church to, I don't want to say consolidate, but to, to have a structure that is in place of what beliefs that the church is going to hold and is not going to hold took place in a lot of these councils in the 300s and 400 AD. And one of those determinations they came to was the Trinity that they officially put in place and said, okay, if you're going to be, you know, a Christian under the name of the church, then, then, you know, this is now the rule is that you have to have a Trinitarian view. And, and early on with those councils, people came to those councils when they began with different views. There was, um, there was the debate over what, what should be the, the law of doctrine regarding these kinds of issues. And there were multiple opinions. And if we go back to early Christianity before the creeds, after the New Testament, or even during some of the uh, of Paul's epistles and other things, we we have Christians who believe differently. So we know that before the councils put into place the Trinitarian view, we know that there were some believers who followed Christ who held a Trinitarian view. We know that there are other people who are following Christ who are in the same group, perhaps. But because there is no spelled out doctrine on this statement, there are believers who held a different view, perhaps, that all three were separate or that the Holy Ghost wasn't a member of the Godhead, or however they defined it. Would you also then call those people not Christians? Well, I I would say that they would be, since the church hadn't officially made a pronouncement on that, that they would be heretics, but perhaps not responsible for their heresy since the church hadn't made that statement. But I would disagree with you uh, that that the apostles would reject the Trinity. Certainly, uh, our understanding of the Trinity advances, uh, but... Uh, I, I think that if someone were to, re- as I said earlier, the deposit of faith ended with the death of the last apostle, so to reject the Trinity, perhaps perhaps you don't know what the church teaches. Well, you wouldn't be culpable for that. And so, yes, in a sense, I'd su- I suppose one might claim to be a Christian. And so I see your point there, Bill. But I suppose that since uh, since you reject what the church teaches regarding the, the Holy Trinity, uh, and since Christ has given that church authority, which I know we disagree about, 
uh, that, that I've still come to my same conclusion that since you reject the church Christ established and gave authority to uh, and have such a different understanding of Christ, the Holy Spirit and God, then I couldn't call you a Christian. Whereas the Protestants right, uh, would have a closer understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ and the Holy Father. Uh, sorry, not the Holy Father, the, uh, the, the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. Sure. But if a Protestant was to reject the Trinity... And that's a good question, Bill. I, I think I would I would probably say he it wouldn't be a Christian religion, right? And and, and that's I guess where I struggle with be doing at that point is is saying that Jesus Christ is perhaps just an expression of the Heavenly Father, that He Himself uh, isn't the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And since the Trinity is the central mystery of our faith, uh, when that gets perverted, I think everything gets perverted. Sure, and I understand where you're coming from. It's just I struggle with the idea that. We recognize that after the apostles died, I mean, you stated earlier that the Pope doesn't receive new revelation. He's simply teaching the current things that are, that are there. And when we look at the teaching or the acceptance of the Trinity as a doctrine or as a creed within the faith, that doesn't come about until hundreds of years after Christ. And all of a sudden this group of men get together and they have some conversation back and forth. And at the end of the day, the majority of them decide to take a stance on a certain, a certain belief. And all of a sudden everybody after them is held to a standard that wasn't necessarily spelled out distinctly in the scriptures to be clear so that, that it would really be unfair to be a hundred percent certain only using scriptures or only using um, revelation that we know comes from God to say that, you know, the Trinitarian view is the absolute, no doubt, it's the way we go. It, it, it comes later on. And it, and so for Latter-day... Well, I was going to say, it comes later on, but that's not to say that the Scripture doesn't, doesn't teach it. Bill, would you say that a Christian who rejects the New Testament, would you call them a Christian if they rejected the New Testament? If a Christian rejected the New Testament, I would struggle. I would likely not call them a Christian. And I suppose I'm in that similar situation because the New Testament wasn't officially defined until the Council of Rome in 382, where Pope Damasus I declared what those books were. Now, prior to this compilation, uh, perhaps Christians rejected, uh, say, Revelation, the book of Revelation, or the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, and I don't know if I would, I, I don't know if I would deny them the title Christian during that time, but since the church has now defined what the New Testament is, to reject that, uh, I think would say, well, they're not, they're not Christian. Uh, and in, the, in, the, in a similar way, even though that wasn't defined until hundreds of years later, the same is true with the Trinity. Does that make sense? Isn't it, I, and this, this isn't a knock on you, this is a knock on, on those outside of the the Catholic faith, in a sense. But isn't it ironic that Protestants use the Catholic creeds to then tell Mormons they're not Christian when the Protestants themselves acknowledge that somewhere along the way, the Catholic Church went off track. Yeah, and so I think what a Protestant would say is, you know, for example, the, these, these certain councils, right, Nicaea, Constantinople, etc., they would say, well, the Church was still Christian, but, uh, you know, over time, the Catholic Church uh, started to believe all these sorts of weird pagan things, and that's when uh, Martin Luther had to come along and scrape off these uh, pagan barnacles, right, on, on, this, on this church which you could think of as a ship. And so Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers restored this church to its pristine Christianity. So that would be, yeah. that would be their argument. So they, they... Yeah, except that's a slippery slope because then if we debate when is that moment 
where the church went from being authorized to unauthorized, now now we're up in the air on where that moment is. ...would say they would just go to the scripture, and they would see that these things were confirmed there. You mentioned it's a slippery slope, you know, when did the church lose its authority? Can I ask you, does the, does the Mormon have a, a basic uh, or definite understanding of when the Catholic Church apparently fell into apostasy? Well, there would be two ideas. One would be in authority, which is when all of the apostles were were killed. Uh, the LDS Church would not accept that Pope and Apostle are the same thing, and that the Apostles, when killed off, what was left was the next tier down of leadership, which were Popes who were over different areas of, of geographic locations. And so when the Apostles died, they would have considered that authority-wise an apostasy, but they also would have recognized that theologically, that there was already some apostasy going on towards the end, which as Paul is running around from church to church, he is trying to get them to correct some of the false practices that they're doing. So there's a growing there's a growing apostasy within the church, but you would say by the death of the last apostle, certainly that was the complete apostasy. That the... Right, and when we see the, the, uh, the statement to Peter that upon this rock, you know, I shall build my church, just before that, that scripture is the whole idea of, of Peter revealing that Jesus is the Christ, and Christ's reply being that man hath not told thee, but God hath told thee. And our understanding of the rock then, using that scripture, our interpretation would be that the rock is revelation, the revelation that Peter received. And so it's upon revelation that the Lord built his church. Uh, or, or so that would be the way we would go, rather than saying that the rock is specifically Peter. Because I'm right in understanding that Mormons believe in a total apostasy. Because if you say it was a partial apostasy, then the true church didn't need to be uh, revivified. It's a total apostasy, at least by the death of the last apostle. Yes. Yes. Although, again, this would take probably another two hours to talk about. But Latter-day Saints, within their theology, allow room for John the Revelator to have remained alive, to have not tasted of death, which the scriptures hint of. And we also know that in the Book of Mormon, the three Nephites who were also given authority were never tasted of death. And so on some level, we recognize that there's a possibility that some of those men would have stayed alive. But in the Book of Revelation, it says that the church retreated into the wilderness where it was nurtured of the Lord. And so we would have, we would understand that those men who were left alive would have not carried on the church, but would have, would have essentially, I don't want to say gone into hiding, but would have retreated into the wilderness where they would wait until the restoration took place. Well, here's a question, Bill. Why do you accept the authority of the Catholic Church, uh, in 381, as I said, when she, she gives you the 27 books of the New Testament? She defines what they are. Why do you accept, uh, the inspiration of those books when it was a, an apparently apostate church that gave them to you. Right. I'm not limited. You know, you asked earlier if someone rejected the New Testament. I, I would have, I guess I would have to backtrack and say, when you when you ask that question, my immediate response is yes, only in the sense that by rejecting the New Testament, I'm assuming they're rejecting the divinity of Christ. But for somebody to throw out or to, let's say, another book of the New Testament, um, let's say when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, that we discovered three or four more books that probably should be included with the scriptures. Latter-day Saints have no problem with some books. For instance, the Songs of Solomon in the Old Testament are seen by Latter-day Saints as not scripture, that it is it is something outside the bounds. Uh, Latter-day Saints also are open to the Apocrypha having some divine truths in them, but that not enough for it to be widely accepted. And Latter-day Saints would be perfectly comfortable with any books coming out in the future that are discovered that were used by the Christians in the early days. And so while we're grateful that we have the scriptures in the form that they're in, I don't know that Latter-day Saints are bound to accepting them as as a as a the the only book that that we work from hey we can't discuss everything in in one meeting and but i do want to say one final thing uh and that's this um 
I want to thank you, Bill, for having me on the program. You're an intelligent man and obviously a man who loves God and is uh, striving to, fo- to follow him. And, uh, and I appreciate your charity and, uh, and your reasonableness. Awesome. I look forward to Hopefully we can have you back on at some point. Yeah, that, that would be terrific. Maybe we could uh, tackle certain topics um, for different programs or something. But yeah, okay. you got it. Thank you for helping me to think a little because I'm going to reflect more upon what you asked about uh, if someone prior to these definitions rejected the Trinity, would I consider them a Christian? That's something I hadn't thought of before. And so I look forward to thinking about that. All right. Well, hey, Bill, thank you very much. I hope, uh, I hope that was, hope that was uh, what you were after. That works. Thank you so much, Matt. Well, thanks so much, Bill. It's great talking to you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope By thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood That day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above